I hope that readers leave the pages of Out of Darkness with a commitment to creating a world where we work to honor black and brown lives and embrace the right of all loves to flourish. Thank you so much for this honor and for taking the time to celebrate with us. That was author Ashley Hope Perez in September of 2016. She was accepting the Americas Award from the Library of Congress for her historical young adult novel, Out of Darkness. Five years later, in September of this year, Perez found herself at a very different event. She was a featured panelist at the American Library Association's Band Books Week, which celebrates the freedom to read. Out of Darkness, which Kirkus Reviews called a powerful layered tale of forbidden love in times of unrelenting racism, was now under attack. Take her out back, we boys figured, then hand on the titties. Put it in her coin box, put it in her cornhole, grab a hold of that braid, rub that calico. You can find that on page 39 of the book called Out of Darkness, which you can find at Hudson Bend Middle School and Bee Cave Middle School. That was Texas mom, Cara Bell, at a school board meeting in Austin. The video went viral and Perez became the latest in a long line of authors whose works have been banned or challenged in communities around the country. She joins an illustrious list that includes John Steinbeck, Harper Lee, and Toni Morrison. Today on Banished, part one of my conversation with Ashley Hope Perez about the controversy around her book and the rise in concerted efforts from a certain part of the political spectrum to censor literature that might highlight the troubling history of gender and race relations in the U.S. My name is Ashley Hope Perez, and I am the author of three novels, including Out of Darkness, which is the one most folks have heard of, and I am also an assistant professor of comparative studies at The Ohio State University, and I coordinate our world literatures program. Tell me a little bit, Ashley, about how is it that you got interested in writing fiction and in writing young adult fiction? That's a very particular kind of storytelling and a particular audience. So if you can shed some light on what drew you to that. I should have said, or I could have said in my bio, former high school teacher, I became an author of young adult fiction specifically because of my high school students in Texas. So I had been writing fiction since probably middle school or high school and occasionally earning enough by selling or more often submitting material to contests. So occasionally I earned enough to pay my very cheap rent in Austin, Texas with my fiction, which felt really exciting. I didn't contemplate writing young adult fiction specifically until I had conversations with my own students in our media center at Chavez High School in Houston, Texas. My goal was always to find the gateway book for each of my students. Many of my students didn't consider themselves readers. And my personal mission was to change that. And I was, had a pretty high success rate. We would often talk about the movies that they liked or things that were going on in their personal life, the kinds of things they had liked in the past, if there were any books that they would tell me about that they had liked. And I did well, but there were also in the course of those many conversations a lot of glaring gaps. And 
ultimately, my first novel, What Can't Wait, was my effort to give my students the book that they wanted but couldn't find on the shelves of our school library. So this is interesting because your first novel is definitely a story of marginal voices. And could you say a little more about what the kind of demographic background of the students you were teaching was and how that played into or did it play into and inform your writing of your first book? So I taught in Southeast Houston. My students were predominantly Latinx and African-American. And the main character in What Can't Wait, Marisa, is kind of a composite of some of my students. I mean, the book is set in their high school. The park that the main characters have their little date on is a park that they know about, you know, really trying to fill it with the references that were part of their experience. But many of my students were navigating hardships and expectations that most white middle class teenagers don't have to. And I think Mm -hmm. that honoring the complexity of that balancing act, you know, the constant need to figure out how to accomplish what they needed to accomplish to advance educationally, while also expressing care and support in their extended families. That balancing act was what I really wanted to show and what can't wait. Because my students almost found it offensive to read books with characters who in some way resembled them. You know, maybe the main character was from a working class family or, you know, first generation college student. But the thing that they found offensive and objected to was the implication that all that it took to turn things around was just getting to college. Mm -hmm. They felt that that didn't reflect how many ways they still needed to figure out how to support their families. And in many cases, and this is still often what it is like for first-generation college students, you know, my students' families depended on their contributions. Whether it was students working and then contributing that money to the household or many of my young women students would miss school because their sister might have been sick and couldn't take care of her own kids. Come on, Gustavo, I shout. I really need to study for my calc test tomorrow. Ashley Hope Perez reading an excerpt from her book, What Can't Wait. I jiggle the knob, but his bedroom door is locked. Can't do it, he calls. I got a job lined up, like, in 20 minutes. Transmission work. Guy's paying me 100 bucks plus extra parts. Well, call and tell him you'll do it later, please. You said you'd watch her. She's your niece, too. Give it up, Marty. I got stuff to do. God, why is it always my job to watch her? I can't do calculus and cook dinner and babysit aunt. Gustavo cranks his music way up, drowning me out. I kick his door hard. Well, you're such a pendejo, I shout but I know he can't even hear me. I give the door another kick and spin around, nearly tripping over Anita, who's standing right behind me, sucking her pinky finger and holding Paco by his neck. Shit. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see my math book through the mesh of my backpack. My mind drifts to Miss Ford and the list of requirements for the UT engineering program. But I push the thought away. Calculus can wait. Anita can't. So the main character is often being asked to prioritize responding to the immediate 
demands over what she needs to do for her longer term goals. And so the title, What Can't Wait, is really about that. And I think that understanding that equation was one of the things that really transformed my teaching and my students' experience in my class because we learned how to get creative in ensuring that they could complete assignments or that they could read a text. So for example, I got really good at hooking my students up with audiobooks because kids who were caring for a baby could listen to an audiobook while also providing care in a way that they couldn't sit there and read the novel. What I really appreciate about your writing is how you bring out that complexity of navigating different worlds while trying to get an education for these young people, you know, an education where education is seen as the path forward to success, which the family is also invested in. But at the same time, there are these things that need to be done every day. You identify on your own webpage as a white woman. And I found it very interesting that you have been writing these stories about people who are not white. Mm -hmm. And of late in young adult fiction, actually, there's been a trend of canceling people, people canceling themselves for writing about things that they don't own or about identities or experiences that they haven't been through. And I'm wondering, I mean, we'll get to the book controversy But that's about something else. It's not about you being a white woman and writing about non-white people's experiences. And I'm almost kind of like, what's your secret to escaping that? Because it's so pervasive right now. And I wonder to what extent your surname has has helped you. Shielded me. I have to consistently position myself because I do have a Spanish last name. My son's dad is from Mexico. I'm also bilingual, so I think that there are many factors, and including the fact that Latinidad is not a racial category as much as it's an ethnic and cultural category. So I, I do work hard to identify myself. It is a bit complicated for me, though, because growing up in East Texas, to say I'm not Mexican or I'm not Latina was a way of distancing oneself from a marginalized community. Whereas I'm extremely proud of the degree to which I've been able to experience Latinx communities, primarily Mexican-American communities. I highly value that cultural identity. And so, you know, it's taken me time, and I don't know that I'm always successful, to find the way to accurately position myself while also valorizing the cultural identity of my own children and the broader Latinx community. So I think that you're absolutely right. There's often confusion. (laughs) I don't know any way of drawing an arrow to my last name and being like, this doesn't make me Latina. But I think that one of the other things that has assisted me is that I'm deeply invested in honoring the particularity of experiences, whatever the experiences are. And certainly in Out of Darkness, I'm writing outside of my own experience in just about every possible way, with the exception that one of the characters is, you know, a young woman. (laughs) And I experience being a young woman. But when I teach fiction, when I teach writers, I try to remind them that they are always writing outside of their experience, always. There is no way of telling a story, even a nonfiction narrative, solely from within one's own experience. And even when we're 
narrating our own past experience. We're just not that same person anymore. So I try to encourage writers to think about what it means to honor a story, what it means to steward a story, whether that story is one that they are imagining and that is full of characters who they see as like them in some way, or if they're really working far outside of their own experience. In all of those cases, being attuned to what is particular in a given character's situation in the world makes for better fiction. So I I try to connect that question of who are the characters, what are their experiences to craft. So I would just say that I'm always writing from outside of my experience. And I just recognize that particularly when a white person is writing from the perspective of a marginalized or in other ways non-dominant identity, Mm -hmm. it's extra important to be responsive to communities. I know other authors who dig more into their creative license and other positions, but in my view, responsibility to communities that have historically Mm -hmm. been marginalized is far more important than what phrase I chose. To give you an example of that, Debbie Reese, who is a very ferocious advocate for accurate representation of American Indian experience in children's literature. She reached out to me shortly after I published Out of Darkness and informed me that a phrase I'd used, low man on the totem pole, was inaccurate Mm -hmm. because totem poles don't have hierarchies. What she helped me to know was that by using that phrase, I'm circulating a misconception about a native cultural object, and and that is not what I want to do, right? So I know authors who would come back and say, well, this is in dialogue. Well, this is set in 1936. These were phrases people used. That can all be true. Why am I going to prioritize my selection of an idiom over the interests of a group that have been misrepresented time and time again in children's literature. So I don't need to be part of perpetuating that misconception. So when Out of Darkness had its first reprint, I was able to change that phrase, and nothing is lost, in my view. And I've had a chance to be responsive to a community affected by the words I put on the page. I've heard you talk about Out of Darkness and the controversy around it, For our listeners, can you sketch out what the controversy is? The book was published in 2015 and has recently been banned in schools in Texas. It's Texas, it's Utah, it's Missouri, it's Kansas, it's Virginia. There have been waves of negative attention to the book. As you pointed out, it was published in 2015 and it was an uncontroversial award winner for six wonderful years. Yes. And it was first banned, and it was actually banned. The district made a statement that this book was not going to be used or be available. That happened in Leander, Texas. It was the first, I think, of these very sweeping challenges Mm -hmm. where not just one or two books are being challenged, but over a dozen. And I think that there are ways that In retrospect, I can see in Leander a template being set, and it's not by accident that that's been repeated over and over. And it's not that Leander, Texas is that persuasive. There are groups who are dedicated to provoking this kind of action all over the country. 
Yeah, Rachel, these challenges are being seen at school districts all across the country. And for some of these books, they have long been facing challenges and even bans. Some classic books are pulled from the shelves of a local library. Fox Kansas News at 9 starts yes, yes, right That was now. because a parent made a complaint, and when that complaint happened, there was a list that was compiled. That parent gave that list to school administrators. Administrators then took that list, and they went inside the school's library here at the high school and took all of the books that they had inside the library from the shelves. Parents have shown up to school board meetings and made very dramatic readings from texts. Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez. It is labeled as a historical fiction by our North Kansas City School District libraries. And I quote, she watched her hand move back and forth as if it was not hers. A moment later, the thing leaped and a hot mess lay across her palm and between her fingers. Henry walked to the bathroom and guided her hand to the sink as he rinsed her hand. All better, he said. That is an adult with a minor. Incest. And taking a few scenes out of context have made allegations that these books are pornographic or anti-police or un-American or are promoting unhealthy lifestyles or are grooming children for sexual abuse. There's some really wild claims about the books, overwhelmingly without any attention to the book as a whole. Books that contain pornography, pedophilia, child rape, glorify drug use, glorify anti-police narratives come with greater responsibility. The book Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez is one such book. For authors who've, you know, invested years of their lives in writing the stories that we believe young people need, this kind of not just opposition to our work, but opposition in the absence of reading mm -hmm. is incredibly painful. I don't care what, you know, a hysterical Texan thinks about my book. I mean, I wish for her to read it and to have an open mind, but she's not my audience. Mm -hmm. The thought of a teacher taking their class to a library and instead of finding those books that they need, students are finding empty places on the shelf – that's really upsetting and disturbing to me. And I don't even know how to express how far we've come since I was a high school teacher in 2004. I mean, we're never going to be done creating work to respond to the needs of young people. But the contrast between 2004 and 2021 is incredible. And the thought of kids losing access to those stories I don't want to say that it's heartbreaking. It's maddening. It's infuriating. It's an injustice. It's a real harm. And I think that when I hear these parents rant about the harm they imagine that reading a book that portrays human experience, this harm they imagine that will do to their child, it is a hypothetical harm. In many cases, the people who are making these performances don't even have children in the schools where the books are available. It is a fabricated, imagined certainly exaggerated potential harm. Whereas in my view, removing access to books is a real harm. Because the books on the shelf, no one's being forced to read them, right? You know, the librarian's not walking around shoving out of darkness into kids' arms and saying, you must read this book. If you don't, what? I don't know. It's there for the kid who's 
ready to deal with those difficult histories. It's there for the student who wants to know what school segregation looked like in Texas in the 30s, who by reading this book comes to understand their grandparents' resistance to coming into a school building, right? Those kinds of encounters with the book that a student needs are precious and should not be taken away by a handful of parents who are not simply asking for their rights to matter for their own child. They want to dictate what everyone else can have access to. And that really upsets me. I'd like you to, you know, dig a little deeper and tell me what you think has shifted between when you were a high school teacher and now, and particularly what's shifted in the last six years, because this book has been out. It won prizes. You know, it's not an obscure book in the young adult world. It was celebrated. And suddenly we see this backlash against it. What Mm -hmm. do you attribute this shift to? In 2015, when I was publishing this book, I was terrified and I imagined that there might be backlash, that the book is too intense, it's too dark. Certainly, there are incidents in the book that reflect racialized violence that's historically accurate, but also very uncomfortable to read about. And what happened instead was that in the time that I spent writing the novel, which I started in 2012, a national conversation about racialized violence, police brutality emerged. And that created an environment in which Out of Darkness made sense, why we needed to look back and trace those lines forward into the present. That made sense to people. It still makes sense to people. Many, many readers are still having that experience of, through Wash and Naomi, the main characters, and what it is for them to navigate the spaces of their world in 1936 especially white readers, have the opportunity to understand how another person's lived experience could be so different from their own, how they could feel safe in their body walking into a store, but their friend who's Black or Latinx may have a completely different experience of that same space. So that kind of not just empathy, but empathy across difference or reckoning with the particularity of someone else's experience and the fact that what we each individually know about the world may not give us all the information we need to understand what happens to someone else. That's still going on. That's still happening for readers of Out of Darkness. But the reason books like Out of Darkness that confront our racist history are being attacked is that there is a broader effort to suppress these conversations. The anti-CRT legislation all over the country is really about muting the critical conversations that not just allow young people to navigate their own lived experiences, and that's very important, especially for minoritized youth, but also give all students, whatever their background the cultural competence they need to navigate a world in which not everyone's experience will be like theirs. The notion that simply making space for difference and acknowledging our histories and how our histories shape the present, the notion that that is somehow anti-white or damaging to white students is what's driving this movement to suppress what teachers can teach, 
and which stories and histories can be included. And books like Out of Darkness have been swept up in that. It's not limited to books that contend with racism. And in fact, my book has been included over and over, supposedly because of the sexual content. But if you look at which books, right, which books are being targeted for their sexually explicit, quote unquote, sexually explicit content. It is overwhelmingly books that center non-white, non-dominant identities. Meanwhile, a suburb of Wichita, Kansas is removing 29 books from circulation. That list from the Goddard School District includes Margaret Atwood's classic, The Handmaid's Tale. They called themselves the KKK, a history of the hate group by Susan Campbell Bartoletti, and Fences by August Wilson, part of his series of 10 plays about being black in America. The American Library Association has recorded a 60% increase in the number of challenges on books in September of 2021 compared to a year earlier. And many of these books are dealing with racial or LGBTQ issued topics. And I've made this point over and over because I grew up in a Bible church. I'm like, listen, you want to talk sexually explicit content? You want to talk disturbing scenes? Let's do some Bible study together because <laughs> I can take you to all of those passages. Mm-hmm. You want to go to Ezekiel and find out, you know, I won't go into it all because it's sexually explicit. No one is showing up at these meetings saying, I cannot believe this sexually explicit book is on the shelves of our middle school, right? Which, you know, it is. Bibles are in every Texas middle school and high school. No one's talking about Shakespeare and Chaucer in that way. No one's bringing up the great Gatsby and distressed at the rape culture, you know, vibes there. So it's very telling whose work is being targeted and which representations are being targeted. I genuinely believe there's a a certain logic of, how do I say this? I believe that books are being treated as proxies, for the people Mm. that these parents wish didn't even exist in their kids' school or in the world. They can't remove the trans and Latinx and black kids from the world. But the idea that they can remove representations of them, framing these books just existing, just being there on the school library shelf as a problem because they represent non-dominant, non-white experiences is part of that broader gesture of digging back into a notion of white centrality, whose stories matter. Perez pointed to a concerted effort on the right to silence certain voices. If that sounds like hyperbole, consider that in her home state of Texas, Republicans have already banned from public schools so-called critical race theory, a catch-all term that can include just about any discussion of racial injustice. Consider also that Governor Greg Abbott is threatening criminal charges against teachers and librarians who supply supposedly pornographic material. And among the authors whose works are being investigated are best-selling novelist John Irving and Pulitzer Prize winner Anna Quinlan. In part two of my conversation with Perez, we dive more deeply into the controversy surrounding Out of Darkness and talk about what the attacks on her book have meant for her personally. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. In the meantime, don't forget to comment, rate, and share this episode. Your support makes our work at Booksmart Studios possible. So please consider becoming a paying subscriber. You'll get transcripts, full interviews, and bonus segments. 
Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Furlow. And I am Amna Khalid. <laughs>